previously on the Florida Files. Hey, County Police and Fire, do you have an emergency? Yes, there's a gunfight going outside my office window. It's an FBI unit. Uh, we've got a black, we believe that it's uh, the black Chevy. Uh, we've been looking for it. The scene is a tangled mess of bashed cars, broken glass, guns, and most chilling of all, the bodies of federal lawmen who died in the line of duty. There was a, a point there when everything was silent. It's 9 a.m., Friday, April 11th, 1986. Traffic is traveling along a busy stretch of Miami's South Dixie Highway. Commuters are making their way to work in the many office buildings that share the landscape with strip shopping malls. South of the Sunnyland Shopping Center and behind the smaller Dixie Bell is one of Sunnyland's quaint residential neighborhoods. It's morning. The school bus rushes over. Newspapers tossed from canvas carrier bags by paper boys onto front porches have been scooped up. Cars roll by with ladies heading to the courts for their daily tennis doubles game. Neighbors wave to each other as they walk their dogs. There isn't even the faintest sign that not even an hour later, the South Miami neighborhood will go from a sedate suburb to the scene of pandemonium. It's just south of 124th Street, uh, south of 124th on 82nd Avenue. Okay, that's 124th Street and 82nd, 82 Avenue? Yeah. And how many people are out there? I can't tell. There are trees in the way, but uh, several cars. Are they shooting a gun or are they threatening? They're shooting guns and machine guns. They have guns and machine guns? Yes. This is the site of a shootout where gunshots ring and spent shell casings drop brass, staining the street blood red. It will forever mark the spot of the bloodiest day in FBI history on 82nd Avenue in what is now known as the village of Pinecrest. Two men were seen driving a stolen car believed used in recent bank robberies. After a short chase, the suspects were surrounded here by seven FBI agents. The two men could have given up, but instead came out firing a machine gun. Eyewitness News 10's John Scott interviews witnesses who live in the neighborhood. Shocked, Billy Holloway and Bob Stebbins describe what they saw. They're okay corralled, what else? They're just in the middle of the street shooting. I mean, this is unbelievable. You see the handguns, you know, going in every which way direction. One fellow was crouched behind the trunk of his car, that was the white car, and he was crouched down firing over the hood. And uh, all of a sudden he just got hit series of blood showed up around his neck and just fell over like a jackknife. When paper boys deliver the newspaper the next day on those same front porches, writer Carl Hyacinth's front page story in the Miami Herald describes the aftermath. One color of death was bright yellow, it reads. Yellow were the police ribbons that stretched from tree to tree. Yellow was the color of the plastic sheets that covered the two FBI agents who lay dead in the shade of a black olive tree. Occasionally, the breeze would lift the sheets and a policeman or federal agent would hurry forward to cloak them again. The dead killers lay bloody and uncovered.
Local 10 and Local10.com present the Florida Files. I'm Michelle Solomon, and this is the story of the Sunnyland Miami shootout, the bloodiest day in FBI history. The scene of the shooting was in the back of a shopping mall, and employees of many of the businesses said they heard what sounded like a bunch of firecrackers. Of course, your first impulse is to go out the back door and see what's going on, but fortunately, reason took over and uh, didn't go out the back door. I told the ladies in R.R., that's gunfire, that's not firecrackers. I'm not going to go down and investigate gunfire. The residents of this neighborhood are still shocked by the shootout. But everyone we talked to expressed an understanding for the necessity of police undercover work. They say it could happen anytime, any place, especially in a city with an ongoing war against crime. In Southwest Aid, Peggy Lewis, Channel 10 Eyewitness News. Miami Division Special Agents Benjamin Grogan and Gordon McNeil are on the FBI C-1 Miami bank robbery squad. McNeil is the supervising agent. It's Thursday, April 10th, 1986, and the two are at firearms training. McNeil tells Grogan what's been rattling around in his head. It's the pattern that the two brazen bank robbers have begun to reveal. The FBI has been investigating them for over a year now. The ruthless killers have started to get predictable. William Russell Maddox and Michael Lee Platt have been showing up on Fridays. They hold up banks and armored cars in the morning between 9 a.m. and noon. McNeil's thinking tomorrow, Friday, April 11th, might be one of those days. The guys hit banks all within a 40-block radius. It's later discovered that the places they were robbing weren't far from where each of the men lived. Police say Michael Platt and William Maddox were best friends and that they were driving a stolen car during today's shootout that was used in at least one bank robbery. That's Peggy Lewis of Channel 10 Eyewitness News reporting just hours after the April 11th shootout. Two weeks ago, Eyewitness News reported that police were looking for two men who would shoot target hunters in the Everglades, steal their cars, and rob armored cars and banks. Police believe that Platt and Maddox were those two men. The robberies they committed in the um, shootings in the Everglades were very brutal, very cold-blooded. They're suspected in a good number, probably upwards of seven or eight bank robberies and uh, armored car robberies. Special Agent Ed Morales is with the C-1 squad, and he's assigned to the surveillance. People have said, hey, what caused you guys to be out there that day? And that, uh, that is, again, you know, it's just uh, uh, happenstance, you know, tense. Uh, Gordon asked Ben, said, hey, listen, you know, how about if we run surveillance tomorrow? And, you know, my understanding is that Ben said, yeah, Gordon, you know, I mean, I'll take all the help I can get. You know, he said, what, what's up, what do you know? He said, well, I, I don't really know anything. He said, I'm just, I just have a hunch, you know, and that's exactly the word he used, a hunch. And uh, he said, hey, these guys can hit any day of the week. But he said, um, they hit on Fridays 50% of the time. <clears throat> so, I mean, that's a, an intuitive, uh, educated guess, I guess you'd call it. Acting on McNeil's hunch, it's decided. On Friday, April 11, 1986, 14 agents in 10 FBI cars, 
are to meet at 0900 hours to get their assignments. They're going to set up surveillance of a section along South Dixie Highway. Bloodstains remain tonight in the middle of this Kendall Street, the blood from one of Dade County's worst multiple shootings. Two FBI agents died here this morning, three others were wounded while trying to apprehend two bank robbery suspects. The two dead agents are identified as 53-year-old Benjamin Grogan, a 25-year veteran, and 30-year-old Jerry Dove, an agent for just four years. And apparently when they believed they had sufficient assistance, an attempt was made to pull this vehicle over. At that point, a confrontation ensued, shots were fired, which resulted in the killing of the two individuals that were pulled over by the agents, the killing of two FBI agents, and the wounding of five other agents, two of them, or three of them, superficially. Excuse me, two of them superficially. The three agents who were wounded, the two here at Baptist Hospital, and one at South Miami Hospital, uh, they are in serious and stable condition, and they are presently recovering from their wounds. We have, uh, at the present time, forensic science team from Washington on the scene. The investigation into exactly what went on here, a very long one, dragging on well into the night, involving not only the FBI, but also Metro Dade's robbery detail and its homicide investigation unit. For police officers, it is a very painstaking investigation and also a very painful one. In South Dade, John Scott, Channel 10 Eyewitness News, on the Nightbeat.
three of the agents who took part in that stakeout that day tell me they remember it like it was yesterday. Don't think they don't have flashbacks about it. They do. Their emotions range from anger to gratitude to guilt and back to gratefulness, they tell me. Agents in Mundo Morales, his fellow agents Colometti and John Jake Hanlon, tell me harrowing stories of what it was like to stare death in the face. Agent Brian Jerome admits to survivor's guilt. He could have been in the car with Ben Grogan, who first spotted the bad guys in a stolen car, then alerted the others. Grogan was the 26th agent killed in the line of duty that day. Jerome knows he could have ended up being a statistic too. Instead, 30-year-old Jerry Dove was riding with Grogan. Dove becomes the number as the 27th FBI agent killed in the line of duty. Here's some history. The FBI calls them service martyrs, a designation which began in 1925 with Special Agent Edwin C. Shanahan. He was named the first after he's murdered by a car thief in Chicago, Illinois. These are the survivor stories from the bloodiest shootout in FBI history, when about 150 shots were exchanged in five minutes between bad guys and FBI agents who just showed up for work that day. The agents tell me their day starts out like any other, but that their lives and the lives of their comrades dramatically changed in a matter of minutes. Morales and Hanlon didn't think they'd even be here to tell the stories of what it was like to go up against the two never-say-die killers who were hell-bent on not giving up. But the agents were hell-bent too. They recall their motivation to fight till the end. And for one agent, he says he lives with the fact every day that as fate would have it, Ben Grogan changed his mind. The Metro Day Trauma Network helicopter arrived at Baptist Hospital shortly after 10 o'clock. On the ground, paramedics were already waiting to move the wounded agents to the emergency room. Doctors say one agent suffered gunshot wounds to the chest and hand. An ambulance moved into position to move the second agent. The other gentleman had uh, two injuries as well of concern. One was to the hand, which again will require surgery but will not be life-threatening under most circumstances. A third agent was taken to South Miami Hospital and treated for a head wound and a fracture of the left arm. I really don't anticipate any change for the worse, but would reserve that last comment because we don't know for sure what would happen. You know, just a routine day. I mean, everything, you know, it's kind of like the, the quiet before the storm. You know, nobody really knew that the storm was coming. You know. Morales wrote a book called FBI Miami Firefight, Five Minutes That Changed the Bureau. It took him years to finish it, he tells me. One, because he had to wait until he retired from the FBI in 2004. He tells me a federal employee writing a book is considered outside employment, and you can't have outside employment. The other is because publishers told him the original manuscript was overwritten, with too much of his own backstory. So he ended up cutting out a lot about the small town boy from South Texas who does good. But he finally did it. 
He released the book in 2017. He wanted to, quote, set the record straight about what happened that day. His wife, Liz, also a former FBI agent, is credited with co-writing the book. You'll hear from Liz in an upcoming episode of The Florida Files. Morales, who was awarded the FBI's first-ever Medal of Valor, has been lauded as the hero of the Sunnyland shootout, a designation he has from the very beginning downplayed. But the facts are the facts. The truth of the matter is, he was the one that ended the gunfight for good. He was the one who delivered the final shots that killed Maddox and Platt. I mean, as, as a police officer, you have to know that, you know, you can run into, into problems, you know, any, any minute, any day, you know, but honestly, I mean, uh, I don't think anybody had a, had a clue, an inkling of you know, what was going to happen, you know. Problems, yes, but no one could have predicted the chaos. Special Agent Richard Manowski, who had put his service revolver on the seat next to him in an agency blue Buick, ready for action, loses his gun when it falls to the floor of the car. Hanlon's service revolver, although in its holster, is lost somewhere in the gold Plymouth he's driving, with Morales as a passenger that ends up crashing into a wall across the street from where the shootout begins and ends. All Hanlon's left with is his five-shot Smith & Wesson snub-nosed revolver in his ankle holster. Another of what Morales calls in his book, Cosmic Dominoes Falling, is Grogan's glasses that get knocked off during the collision of the white agency Buick. He needs his glasses to see, let alone shoot straight. Grogan, however, is credited with the first hit of the gunfight, a bullet that hits Maddox in the arm. Special Agent McNeil, who is one of the three agents that is seriously wounded in the Sunnyland shootout, says this in an FBI training video, which was filmed as a post-mortem of what happened. The training video has valuable interviews because two of the agents who appear in it are now dead. McNeil died in 2004, 18 years after the shootout. He was 61 and he died from cancer. McNeil says this in the training video. Gordon, there was something you wanted to say about Ben and his glasses. If there ever was an FBI agent that I met in my 21 years in this organization that prepared his entire life for April the 11th, 1986, it was Ben Grogan, formerly head of the SWAT team, probably the best shot we had out there, probably the most experienced and highly trained agent we had out there on April the 11th, 1986. In a very tragic irony, when Grogan's car came skidding into a halt prior to the shooting actually starting, after Manalzi had already taken the subjects into the trees, Grogan stopped so abruptly in his automobile, the agent who had prepared his whole life for this incident. And Ben stopped so abruptly, his glasses, he wore glasses his entire life, they flew off his face and they later found them leave under the brake pedal of the car. And what it came down to at the end, with myself down, Ed Morales down, Hanlon was down, Morales was down, Manalzi was injured, Arante uh, was also injured, Ben was there with his weapon in his hand, and he was asking, where is everybody? Because, as I was later told by associates of Ben, he couldn't see 10 feet without his glasses. Despite a deep dive of studies and graphs and video reenactments by the FBI, the hows, the whys, and the what's of what went wrong, 
The stories straight from the survivors paint the best picture of what happened in those fateful five minutes. Uh, no one anticipated. Uh, I know you always have to expect the unexpected, but uh, I don't know if anyone really anticipated being involved in the violent collisions uh, that Manalzi ended up in and that also that uh, John Hanlon and Ed Morales ended up in across the street. much as I've read the FBI reports, newspaper stories, Morales' book, it's mind-boggling that went on in a matter of minutes. It's a lot to take in. A barrage of bullets flying, never-say-die killer Platt riddled with bullets and not giving up the fight. He had shot 42 rounds from the Ruger Mini-14, plus six rounds from two different 357 Magnums. Maddox had shot only one round from a 12-gauge shotgun. Special Agent Richard Manowski is the first hit when Maddox fires his shotgun. It is apparently the only shot Maddox got off. Platt is hit numerous times as he climbs out of the window of the Monte Carlo's passenger door and slides across the hood of the civilian Cutlass sedan early in the shootout. The shots that hit him are believed to have been from Dove's 9mm, but Platt puts an end to that as one of the bullets hits Dove's gun and renders it inoperable. Some reports say that perhaps that's what gave Platt the advantage to come up on Grogan and Dove as they were trying to get Dove's gun back in working order. But it's speculation, as the only people who could have seen what happened, Grogan and Dove, ended up shot and killed, and Agent Hanlon was severely injured. Manowski tells Eyewitness News 10's Mel Taylor from his hospital bed the day after the shooting what he remembers. I couldn't see his hands at all. It was very dark. I was aware they had a weapon. I had my weapon drawn, but I was kind of reluctant to shoot until I was sure that my life was in danger. The next thing I heard was two blasts. I felt one of them hit me, but I really didn't feel any damage, and I didn't really feel the second one. So then it, I just went into what we're trained to do, and I shot six uh, shots at the subject. And I reloaded my revolver, took cover and watched him to see if he would pop up again. That's when I noticed that I was hit. McNeil is shot by Platt in the hand early in the gunfight. As he's trying to reload his gun with his good hand, He's shot in the neck by Platt's high-powered Ruger Mini-14. Morales, with a revolver and a 12-gauge shotgun, remembers scanning the scene. I decided to run across the street to reinforce Ben and Jerry, and um, everything felt like it had slowed down. Again, as I'm scanning, I'm running, I'm halfway across the street to Ben and Jerry's position, and I look out of the corner of my eye to the right, and I saw uh, John Hanley running to reinforce Ben and Jerry. So I made a decision, an instantaneous decision, you know, that instead of running to, to, to Ben and Jerry's position, I veered off to the left, and um, I went uh, to try to reinforce Gordon and over on the left, you know, so you could hear the pop-pops and the bangs, and, and then you, I heard this, kaboom, kaboom, 
kaboom, and it was like a cannon, it sounded like, you know, so uh, an intimidating sound, you know. <laughs> so, you know, so I ran, I ran, you know, over to the left, I ran around McNeil's car, and I was just almost to Gordon's position when I, uh, I told people, I said, I said, hey, if anything happened to me on the way to the gunfight, you know, uh, I, I didn't make it, you know, so... Uh, mm. I said, uh, I said, I'm one second I'm running and looking at Gordon's back, and the next second, second I'm looking up, I'm on my back looking up at the blue sky, and I'm thinking, what the hell happened, you know? Two more agents, Gil Orantia and Ron Reisner, have joined the gunfight and are firing from across the street. Orantia is hit at one point, but not seriously injured. Hanlon, who worked as assistant state attorney for Broward County, among other jobs after he left the FBI, tells me it's strange the things you think about when lives are hanging in the balance, and the reason why he ran to Grogan across 82nd Avenue to take the position he did. That decision would almost cost Hanlon his life. I didn't want Ben to be by, by himself. Uh, when I lived in New Jersey back in the 40s, my mother used to let us go to the movies the day before Christmas, and I saw this movie OSS with Alan Ladd, and there was a real scary scene in that. I must have been seven or eight, maybe. And it scared the hell out of me, but I thought, gee, as long as I, was, I had somebody with me, I'd be okay. And the strange things that go through your mind, and that kind of thought when I saw Ben, I didn't want him to be, so I ran across the street and got behind his car. By the time I got there, uh, Platt was gone. And uh, so I, I had lost my big gun in the wreck. I had this little silly five-shot ankle thing. And I emptied that at the driver, and I went down to reload, and that's when... Uh, he missed me. I felt the concussion by my arm, and then he shot me through the fingers and uh, threw a shrapnel into my thigh and the back of my arm, and that must have hit something because the blood geyser out of the back of my arm. Uh, he came up to the, uh, the rear fender of of uh, right side of Ben's car, and if you look at the crime scene photos, there's a big smear of blood. And as he came around, and that's when he came around and stood between my legs, and I tried to kick him, and he shot me in the groin. He was pretty. He was pretty shot he up was by all then. Shot up. Oh yeah, he was. He was dying. You know, the guy was dying. So then I said, "The son." I said, uh, "I think that's." I don't remember right now. But I said to Ben, the son of a bitch shot me in the balls. And I went over on my side. And uh, that's when Jerry fell down. And the only thing separating me from his, from his head, my head from his, was the, his right shoulder blade. I was looking in his ear, and he tried to raise his head. That's when the guy, Pam Bam, when he dropped his head down on the side of his head, that's when I saw the hole in the back of his head. And then uh, 
Ben said, oh my, like I said, Ben said, oh my God, and fell down, and he went, ugh. He tells me it's the closest he's ever come to death. Well, then I thought he was going to kill me, and I was shaking. And uh, I got a little depressed because I didn't want to die, and I couldn't get up. And uh, I thought to myself, he's going to shoot me. But if he shoots me from a distance, I'll just hear a bang, and that, that'll be that'll be it. But if he puts it against my head, because he was standing right over me, if he puts it against my head, I'll know it's coming, and that'll scare the shit out of me. And, and I said, i got to settle myself, and that's when I flopped over on my back and tried to stop um, shaking. And that's when I saw Ben. He was laying down at my feet. And somewhere along the line, I heard the pow, 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 which I learned later was Eddie, you know, getting up off the ground and finishing him. Reisner, who died in 2002, Morales says in his book From Complications from an Alzheimer's-like Illness, possibly brought on by his exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam, tells a story in the FBI training video about the moment when he believes Ben and Jerry's lives could have been saved. From Reisner's vantage point from across the street, he could see exactly what was going on. But with so much sound from all the gunfire, his warnings of Platt closing in were never heard. Ron, how did you feel when your shouted warnings to Ben and Jerry appeared to go unnoticed? That's, uh, that's the worst part of it all. Obviously, if, um, if they would have heard me and uh, had the time to uh, react, it would have been a different story. For Special Agent Brian Jerome, it was fate that intervened on his behalf on April 11th, 1986. I worked with Ben, and I was on the SWAT team with Ben, and we actually, prior to coming to work every day, we worked out. Uh, so I was assigned uh, in another building because we, had, at the time Miami was growing so rapidly, our office, uh, we couldn't house all the agents. So Ben was in the main office, and I was basically two blocks down from the main office. So that day... Uh, ben and I were planning on going to work out, and uh, he called me and said, Hey, look, um, i got to go out on the surveillance. At the time, I said, You know what? Hey, I don't mind going out on the surveillance because it beats looking at bank records for another eight hours. <laughs> so uh, he said, Yeah, I'll come over and pick you up. He was coming over to pick me up, called me back up, and he said, You know what? I'm uh, going to keep this as a squad thing, and I'm going to go in with Jerry. I said, you sure? And he said, I said, I have all my SWAT gear. He said, nah, I'll just go with Jerry. He said, I'll pick you up later. So I know it's probably, I would think, in my head, I'm thinking, so you have to kind of stay the course as an FBI man. And then there's this personal side of you that probably says, I could have been in that car. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I look back and I had some, years later I had difficulty going, you know, 
I was one phone call away from going in the car with him because he had called and said, yeah, I'll pick you up. And then he called back about two minutes later. He said, nah, never mind. And I'm like, because I was literally getting my stuff out of my car for him to come driving over to throw my stuff into his car. And I, I look back and I, you, know, you have that little bit of survivor's guilt going, well, why was it Jerry and not me? You know, and, and I, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, it just wasn't my time. The good Lord said no. on the Florida Files. Join me, Michelle Solomon, as I talk to the hero, his wife, and look at the aftermath. Get more of the story and online extras, including archive video and photos, at local10.com. Are you a fan of the Florida Files? Tell us what you love about the series on Apple Podcasts and join other fans in leaving us a five-star review. That's on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>